right. Welcome to Center Maryland's The Lobby. My name's Damien O'Darty, and I'm really blessed to bring one of uh, the country's top thought leaders on preservation and smart growth. Uh, you would expect that expert to come from Maryland. His name is Nicholas A. Redding, and he is the executive director of Preservation Maryland. Welcome, Nicholas. It's good to be here. I'm excited to talk with you guys. Talk to me about Preservation Maryland, because I think a lot of us in the look, we just had Joe Bryce on, who was Paris Glendening's chief legislative officer uh, last month, a uh, big forerunner for smart growth. You know, uh, we have an audience like that who would probably know exactly how Preservation Maryland is is operating now. But then we have some other people who might be sort of on the on the outside of the issue or not as familiar with um these issues and I, i'd love for you to give a little background on preservation maryland and its uh inclusion of smart growth principles yeah absolutely so we're a 90 plus year old organization um we were founded back in 1931 um so we've seen a long and big um sort of track of preservation. We've seen many different styles and genres and periods of preservation as an organization. And so we literally started as an organization founded to mark sites in Maryland where George Washington um, visited. So we're wow. like the the official, like original George Washington slept here organization. Right, right. And, Milton Inn and all that, right? Yeah. And, and today we're we're very far from that. Um, but in some ways we still recognize and mark places that matter. Um, they just matter for different reasons. We don't spend a lot of our time um thinking about those kinds of sites, but we're trying to think about how we use historic places to um make life better more sustainable, more equitable for all Marylanders. And so that incorporates a lot of different components of work. And we've really branched out and added a lot of different programming. When I got here um, to the organization in 2014, we had um, six staff members and we'll, in the next couple of weeks, if we can um, get through the hiring, we'll, we'll, we'll bring on our 20th uh, staff member. And so wow. we, we and, and really, what, that 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 growth has occurred from when to when, from fourteen from 20, to now, fourteen to now, yeah, correct. Yeah. So I think it speaks to it's not just you know it's not like a pat on the back for us. It's it, I think it speaks to the value that the state places on in investing in existing communities, and that takes a lot of different um, forms, and it, it requires a lot of different type of work. We do everything from so we call it like our bread and butter preservation, where we, you know, provide support to organizations or municipalities that are trying to figure out their way through how to invest in a place or save a building or something like that and actually providing grants. Um, two, we have a large workforce development program where we're training young adults and recent veterans in historic trades, where we're actually um, working to make sure that there are people there to do the work. So it's a workforce development issue. Um, we have a historic property redevelopment program where we actually get our hands dirty and either buy and rehab structures and then find um, new uses for them. Or we partner with a municipality and we're doing that right now in um, Baltimore County, uh, uh, 
Anne Arundel, Annapolis, um, Howard County, Brunswick, Maryland. We've done one in Hagerstown. So we're kind of all across the state that way and actually physically investing in rehabbing places. And then obviously, as we're going to talk a little bit about, we have a smart growth um, component. And I think we sort of joke that the preservation community was the original smart growth community. We were green before it was cool to be green <laughs> um, because recycling buildings, you know, there's no larger driver of municipal waste than construction waste. Huh. So you could divert every last uh, plastic water bottle um, and still not scratch the surface of the amount of waste that we put into municipal waste across the country um, through construction. So when, so, we're build, when you're building um, a new subdivision um, in Anne Arundel County, or you're building a new office building in um, downtown Baltimore, you're saying that just the construction of that new product uh, delivers more waste than just about anything? No, it's not the new product. Okay. That's a that's an important clarification. It's the demolition of old product. Ah, ah. So we're it. constantly knocking things over and then building new. And I think one of the arguments that we make, not only for preservation, but also for smart growth, one of our kind of like standby statements is you can't build your way out of every problem. And so sometimes you have to reuse what you have or invest in existing places or develop places that have already been developed or previously developed or um, intensified development there. Um, thinking about, you know, big box and and giant sprawling parking lots. Um, you know, there's there's a there's a better use for those. There's a higher and better use for things like that. And we can't simply just sprawl our way out of everything. Um, and I, I think we're realizing that as as a society. Um, but um, you know, we've been making that argument for a long time. And now sort of the pure smart growth piece is a part of our portfolio. Um for the past several years, we can talk a little bit about how that happened. Yeah, like I'm sort of a, a, a political uh, operative of the Glendenning era, let's say. So it's this. I kind of came up with this change in thinking as you know, front and center of my policy lobes as uh, coming up. And I would like to get your point of view. Let's say, let's say Paris Glendenning. And the Maryland community of decision makers decided to go in another direction in, you know, the late 90s uh, with growth. And let's say they had more of an unfettered approach to growth and that the state would, you know, fund projects outside of priority funding areas because priority funding areas don't exist or what have you. Could you give me a world, a vision of what that world may look like today? I mean, you're you live in Frederick County, right? To me, you know, I know I grew up in Baltimore County, Howard County. I could see Frederick County just becoming the center of Maryland these days, uh, and I wonder what it, what that would look like. I wonder what the other parts of the state, Howard, all these places would look like if we didn't have that smart growth rubric as the Maryland way. I, I know you can't be precise about it, but well, I, just I, I your thoughts on that. I, I can paint a really clear picture. Cross the line into Delaware. <laughs> right, That's what right. we'd look like. So Newcastle County. I mean, yeah, you know, you cross that line, head into the beach, um, into Delaware, and there's unfettered growth. You know, they I think that they've now realized what that brought them. 
um, right. crippling traffic, um, huge infrastructure issues, um, people stuck in, you know, in gridlock and things like that. I think that, I mean, so that kind of paints a picture. I mean, Delaware very much went in the other direction. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and so a smaller think- state, you know, you, you know, uh, so puts more, much more pressure on that small state it does it puts more pressure on it i think that there's always this argument that people feel like they're like we can grow our way out of most problems that um if we just build more it'll be better and you know obviously there's a lot of fights about this right now about housing in particular and and how we get to building enough housing um to meet these needs and and sort of the crushing need for affordable housing but at the same time not just relying on sprawl tactics to get there and there are those those voices out there and we we've heard them even in the maryland community that basically says you know if if your community isn't meeting its affordable housing needs then you should be able to build housing wherever you want and i don't think that that's really the answer i think the answer ah that it you're right that's a new so let me let me dig into this a little with you if you don't yeah. mind so yeah, so sure. So I come from this school, like I said, the Glenn Denning Smart Growth School, which was really in, in many ways. I worked for the realtors as a as a young person. And for me, it it made a lot of sense. It said, hey, we can grow, but we've got to grow in these areas, and this is why. And we're not gonna grow in these areas. And here's the explanation for that. And that made a lot of sense to me. I felt like a progressive capitalist or, you know, I felt like uh, it, it was a fair rule book. But when you actually get into the practice of it, you know, the local officials, the county officials um, will use other tools in their toolkit to stymie development uh, that is consistent with smart growth because they have some agitated constituents or neighbors that are reluctant to change or neighbors that are reluctant to a master plan process. And then they, these local officials get hamstrung politically, they believe, and they make what are commonly referred to as sort of NIMBY decisions, right? Not in my backyard. And so smart growth became, um, I think in certain jurisdictions in Maryland, it became sort of an, a promise unfulfilled at least to the development community so yeah what i well, hear what i, what uh, I hear well, you saying oh, go ahead please well yeah what i was going to say is i think you're absolutely right and here's why and this kind of takes us back to preservation here for a second i think we played an amazing game when it came to smart growth in curtailing development in rural areas I think right. if you look at Maryland, you're like, you know, we did a pretty, pretty great job of that. And we've preserved Montgomery a lot of County, land. Baltimore County, yeah, perfect. You're right. George's, I mean, you're right on. You're right. Yeah. On. Even in Frederick County, we're on track for the hundred thousand um, acres protected. And they're even having a conversation about, should we extend that? You know, we've done a really good job on the defensive game of smart growth, but there's two parts to smart growth. There's the defensive, right? Don't sprawl out. But then there's provide enough incentives to intensify development in existing areas. And I think that the challenge in Maryland moving forward to answer those questions about NIMBY and to answer those questions about where does housing go and how do we make all these things work while we still don't want to just build in every farm field is how do we provide the right incentives? How do we make sure that the tools, the tax credits, 
the um, the local zoning is in place that makes growth possible in existing areas that we have infill that we make it easier for developers to build where we want them to build because i think that's the other side of the coin that has never really had i mean you know we don't have the the, the priority funding area tool you know the the, the complement almost that makes it so much easier or so much more focused to redevelop um, redevelopment right, we, sort we, of just <laughs> tends to be kind of like a well, we want it, but it's um, it sort of seems to be an enigma, and and I think that the preservation community has some answers to that, but I think that that's the other that's the big thing I think over the next 10, 15 years is how do we intensify development in existing areas, and and instead of sprawling out, we use the space we've already developed in a better way, and we've seen that around the state. When we talk about that. Yeah, we have. Uh, because of those priority funding areas, like a lot of public infrastructure has been set in place or reinforced in these infill areas. You know, you look at a place like College Park and you see the leadership of uh, the chief strategy officer there, Ken Allman, and how he is turning sort of um, an older, uh, sort of out of touch um uh, sense of place into something new and, and and beaming and connective to all the infrastructure. You'd love to have somebody like that in every every nook and cranny of of Maryland's most dense uh, areas. Uh, we, we don't we're not fortunate enough to have that. So so how do you create a culture um, in those jurisdictions where people can become more? agreeable to really it's to me it's more agreeable to process because once you have a process you can have a conversation once you have a conversation right. you know what, what do you so think that, i mean things? yeah that gets to the bread and butter of what we do with our program called smart growth maryland so people might have been familiar with thousand friends of maryland and several years ago the operations of thousand friends merged into preservation maryland and so we run it as a as a program of the organization and I think what we realize, and we talk with some of our funders about it, we talk with our supporters across the state about it, is kind of getting back to that conversation we had about how we've done a really good job on curtailing sprawl. I mean, it's not perfect, but we we do a good job of that in the state. We put a lot of money into land protection. Um, and what yeah, we and sort I of, think, and I think like the state to transportation department people, at least when we have a Democrat, I, I think Hogan was a little loose on this, but. You know, shutting down access permits all along, you know, Route 40 or, you know, just these obvious sort of little moves that people can make that open up huge swaths of land to, to unsightly develop. Right. But yeah. And what I was going to say, though, is, too, is that I think what we realized is we need to arm our constituents and advocates in communities across the state in existing communities with the tools they need to make the argument for reinvestment and infill. And I think the way that we think about this is if we dropped you in the middle of anywhere across the country and said, there's going to be some type of sprawl development built up here, make the case against it and tell them why they shouldn't do it. Most people could probably do that who kind of pay attention to these things, right? You know, it's oh, the, the cost of development is going to exceed the, the tax revenue and it's going to, you know, destroy connective ag land, or it's going to, you know, these different values. I mean, we can make pretty compelling arguments and, and they're pretty much the same across the board against why sprawl is bad. But if we took that same person and we dropped them into 
well, I don't know, we'll just stick here in Frederick, dropped him into Frederick and said, we really think there should be infill in this basically this big empty lot used to be buildings. They knocked it over in the 60s, turned it into a parking lot. And um, we think it should be infill. Um, but the mandatory parking minimums are going to prevent it from um, being developed the way that's most intensive. Could you make the argument for uh, how to fix that before the city council? And most people are going to go like, ah, you know, I mean, I right. I, right. right? And so what we realized and what we're going to be what we're working on right now is coming up with a set. There's been so many studies on this, but basically distilling it down. So any community member who wants to make the case for that can simply and compellingly say, here's the things that we we should be doing in our community to get more growth, to incentivize the right kind of growth. And some of it comes down to silly things like that. It's not silly, but some of it comes down to things like mandatory parking minimums or, you know, it's uh, it's amen. interesting. Amen. Yeah, it's interesting. I've seen more good, cool development projects killed by parking uh, requirements. From right. And that's so that's so backwards in, in right. its in its view. And I also think, I mean, one of the things we said, I spoke at a Mako conference and they were saying, like, well, how do we get back to the missing middle and how do we do this? How do we do that? And I said, you know. If if you want all of these things, take your planners and send them to any of the dense historic districts anywhere around the state and say, you know, figure out how to recreate that, because most of our historic communities have all the things that we're trying to get back to. We used to build this way, right? Like I live in a historic neighborhood and we have a wide range of different um, housing types all nestled into right. one neighborhood, right? right? And everybody's right. like, oh my gosh, how are we ever going to get rid of single family housing zoning? It's like, well, we used to, right? right. Um, right. So, you know, I think there's not only... Do we think that historic places have value because they're compelling and they tell great stories and they they remind us of where we came from and they have an authenticity and they add value? There's all these great things about them. But um, historic communities, I think, also offer a really great sort of, you know, pattern book for how to build again. Um, well said. You know, and, well and I said. think in many ways we have made it almost impossible to build like we used to and we kind of just have to get back to that we have probably overregulated in in the sense that um we've made it very hard to build the missing middle we've made it very hard to build the kind of communities that people love so much right you couldn't build another downtown frederick right now you couldn't build another ellicott city right now um and there's there's components to that that probably you know, we we want life safety, you know, we we want all those things. And there's certain things that have to be baked into that. But there's a reason people like historic communities as well. And there's That's a right. reason and that there, there's an authenticity to them. They're human scaled. Um, there's varied architecture. I mean, these are all things that we can get back to. Um, and there's ways to incentivize them. Um, and that's what we're really focused on, too. It's not so much the stick, it's the carrot. How do we make this happen? And how do we make it easier for developers to build this way rather than sprawling out? Yeah, you know, another view I'm a little nervous about presenting because it's uh, it, it gets into that regionality again. But let's say you go to Northern Virginia. You see uh, housing the biggest you see the highest quality housing the biggest corporations in america and amenities out the wazoo and they're all 
the, uh, the that product is most likely to be found around a transit stop, a metro stop. Let's say you go into uh, Montgomery County and Prince George's County, you know, since the advent of the the planning of the red line and since Prince George's, uh, you know, emergence as a as a dominant economic development power, you be you are seeing that same dynamic beginning to take hold, you know, in Montgomery, uh, Prince George's and I'll say Frederick, too. Right. Uh, with the Mark line. So that is encouraging. However, if we go up into the the Baltimore market, let's call it uh, Howard County, where there's very limited transit, but let's go to Baltimore County, which had Vanguard preservation and smart growth policies with the Ertl and accepted the uh, Metro line and accepted the light rail line out there in the in the 80s and 90s. Uh, but you look at those lines. I think there's one transit-oriented development in the 800,000-person jurisdiction of Baltimore County, and it's got rail and road out the wazoo. But no, but no, there's just one transit-oriented development. If you're looking at that dynamic, Nicholas, what advice can you give to pro TOD people, to elected officials that? You know, might have very real concerns from their constituents about why they want to keep the status quo and not develop at Lutherville Station or not provide more um, uh, incentives to to make uh, Owings Mills that future Maryland city that it already has become. You know, what what kind of tools, what kind of ideas do you think you could? present to those thinkers and those decision makers that might make uh, for some change. In other words, it might make it a climate or culture more agreeable or acceptable to housing and businesses being located right on top of transit stops, which seems to work in the extremely pro-business Commonwealth of Virginia. But, you know, we talk about economic development in the Baltimore region, but we don't, we don't want to we don't want to play ball like some of the most successful uh, areas in the country when it comes to connecting people with jobs and and housing and healthcare and transit. So sorry for the preachy uh, seek for comment, but I'd yeah, love to, I'd no. love to hear your thoughts for that. Well, I mean, the first one I'll, I'll is sort of a maybe a personal take on it to start before we get into how to make the case for it. But I think one of the challenges that we have too, when you're talking about sort of painting all this picture is that the transit has to also be good in that it has to be reliable. It has to be, um, you know, it has to run regularly. And I, I talk about this from a personal perspective in that I used to commute into DC on the Mark line and You know, it's not always the most reliable right, service. Right, so right. I think that there's two sides. It was of built the- for hybrid work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I used to joke that like it was it was still coal fired our trains. I don't. I'm not sure if that's actually true, but people would believe it. Um. So I I think that that's a that's an important component to it is that the that the the transit that you're using to connect people is world class. Yeah, and uh, Nicholas, you know, just to interject there, that's something w- what you're saying is right on the uh, right on the heels of what Brian O'Malley from the Central Maryland Transportation Alliance said is, 
you know, more trains, more transit is going to be an answer to some of these problems. So you're right. Like, I think that we would have better transit oriented development, for example, like, you know, just we'll, we'll get back to Owings Mills and all that kind of stuff in a second here. But, but like, you know, Brunswick, we work, we work in Brunswick and for those people who aren't familiar, it's right on the Potomac, right out south of Southern Frederick County, right on, right on the border of um, Maryland and Virginia, right on the Potomac. And, um, it's a huge hub for um, the Mark line. Um, and you probably would have some amazing transit oriented development if the Mark line like ran in and out regularly. You know, like I had to get into DC earlier this week and people from out of town from New York City were like, why didn't you take the train in? I'm like, well, if I took the train in in the morning on the Mark, I would be stuck in DC until four, right? Like, and when the train finally returns, it's not like it's, you know, right. The, it's same day service. It's, it's, you know, it's not, it's not regular service. So I, yeah, I mean, I think to the extent that we continue to evolve and make transit out to these different hubs um, more effective, it's going to make the case and people are going to be like, yeah, I'll live out there if I can hop on the train and then come back at 11 and, you know, go in for my meeting and come back out. That changes the dynamic other than sort of like, I'm going to slog in for this commute and I'm going to be there all day. Um, so I think for some of these farther flung areas, that's going to be important. And obviously, the, the you know, the new governor has appointed a transit you know person to be the secretary of, of transportation. So I think that that suggests that um, transit and these sorts of things are going to be a priority over, over the coming years. I think that, you know, when it comes to kind of um, these these projects. I think that one of the things that's compelling is kind of painting a picture of like the broader ecosystem, because I think sometimes people have a challenge in just looking at this one project. And they're like, well, why should I be supportive of this one thing? You know, because yeah. it's, you know, it's, well, that's going to be so intense and they're going to build so much there. And even if it kind of makes sense, but I think in the, in the picture of this is why we're doing it, here's the broader. And I think that was one of the, one of the successes of, of Glenn Denning. One of the many is that he, was able to kind of paint the picture of we're going to we're going to help communities by doing this. We're going to make our existing communities better by doing this. Um, and I think that that's part of what has to happen. I think people look at these um, projects um, sort of isolated in silos and they're like, well, I don't like this one aspect of it. But they don't recognize that by doing this, this preserves the Ertle or this preserves the Ag Reserve in Montgomery County or, you know, this it, it's a it's a balance. And um, I also think that, um, some of it also comes down to design, honestly, and this is probably the preservation side of me where uh -huh. I'm a big fan of, um, form-based code, um, where we're not so much, we're not so hyper concerned about the use, but we're more concerned about what it looks like and its relationship to the street and its relationship to humans. Right. And I think that sometimes that also really helps because people have knee-jerk reactions, particularly to things that they perceive are ugly. And right. we, and that's sort of a subjective thing, but we're seeing more and more communities sort of embrace this. I know Frederick, the city of Frederick is looking there. There's a whole um, East Street corridor, sort of this old industrial corridor on the side east side of the city. And they're looking at redevelopment of it. And instead of sort of just prescribing the development through zoning, they're more concerned about the design that comes in and how it relates to the street and how it activates the street. And I think in the end, it's going to be easier to make the argument for redevelopment of that when people are like, I like the way that that's going to look. I'm cool with that. 
rather than, um, oh gosh, it's going to be this ugly blur of, you know, structures and, you know, things backed off the street and big parking lots. So I think that design is something that we overlook sometimes. And if we can make a compelling case for that or have a process for how that works out, that isn't onerous. It doesn't prescribe every last thing, but it says, here's our pattern book. This is what we want to see. Here's how we want to see buildings relate to the street. Here's the kind of setbacks. Here's the the style. Here's how it's going to look. I think that that helps people sometimes to be able to envision it and also get the sense that there's a, there's sort of a plan in place. And so we're seeing that across the state. And I think design has, is a bigger component of this than oftentimes we think. That's a brilliant assessment. You know, I, one of the things I loved about Glenn Denning was that he was not afraid to like show his whip in the sense that, you know, if he if if something was going against smart growth principles in the in a county, he would he would let them know as only Paris Glenn Denning would let them know, which was to <laughs> su- suggest like, oh, that's great. You want to do that? Terrific. But this budget request you have in here is null and void because. You're just not playing ball the way we're we're all hoping to get this uh, going, where we're where we're preserving more and we're growing in infill areas more. And if you want to go outside of that way of thinking, you're just going to get less state support. And then I think working with Jim Smith, the Baltimore County Executive, he he helped create the Urdle and Owings Mills. And I remember we would go down to talk to the budget chairman. Uh, at that time, Ed Casemeyer, a wonderful, quiet human being. But just because he's quiet doesn't mean he wouldn't get annoyed with us coming down all the time and saying, um, you know, we need more money here. We need more money there. And and he, these elected legislators will, you know, they're, they're faithful to their counties and their county executives. I just wonder if there's a, if, is there a role for the transit caucus or some of these legislators to start chiming in? Um, on the counties, like like Glendening used to do, it was his policy. It was his favorite, and he took a very personal role. Is there something the legislature can do to 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 just remind people, like, look, we're making these investments in rail. We're gonna we got a transit uh, chief as the head of MDOT now, Paul Wiedefeld uh, from Towson, I think. <laughs> so he's familiar with some of these issues, um, and. Uh, you know, I, I feel like there is a real opportunity for some sort of accountability voice on the budget. There's money swirling around everywhere. Is there is there something that the legislature can do to kind of reinforce um, some of the county spending priorities if they're not um, if they're not towing the line on on progressive transit policies? Yeah, I mean, as you as you know, um, and probably most of the listeners know. You know, planning in Maryland tends to be sort of sacrosanct that it is it is the 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 um, you know delegated authority to the municipalities and the counties, and so they bristle at the idea of um, anyone on high telling them what they should or shouldn't do. Um, but I think that perhaps there's some um, concept or uh, an idea in what the federal government has done. I think. Hard to remember which bill it was baked into. It might have been the Inflation Reduction Act, where there is funding that's going to be freed up for communities that um, have documented and have kind of embraced more inclusive zoning practices. And so there's going to be funding made available um, 
you can you can find this. I forget exactly how how it works, but basically, and I've heard folks in Baltimore City talk about this because they're looking at the zoning code um, and want to be in a position to be able to draw down on some of those funds. So I think that there's probably to some extent um, opportunities to incentivize if communities accept or embrace different things that are you know sort of indicative or are good markers for smart growth policy that perhaps they can tap into special funds um, or they have a different bonding authority or, you know, some type of, um, you know, fund that they are able to tap into that others aren't. I think coming in with the stick, you know, MML and Mako, understandably, because it's their job, would be very opposed to that kind of thing. But I think making an incentive sort of program uh, probably would meet with a lot of people's um support and and I think most of the most of the counties would too and it also then helps at the local level when you're trying to make the case before constituents to say okay well we're doing it this way because also it avails us of a b and c state funds um now I also think that there probably still is a role and we didn't see this so much in the past four past eight years um but but probably will moving forward is for the plan you know Maryland Department of Planning to step in and say hey this isn't a good plan or this violates this this tenant or this doesn't conform with your comprehensive plan and you need to go back you know i, I remember yeah think about told, what we're right think about yeah. what we're doing on education right with like everybody's like education's local yeah but you know uh the state has a role the state has a thornton a role the state has uh now the Kerwin blueprint experience you know there's there's some guidance from the state i think you make a great point there yeah and i think that you know as the state matures and grows and the challenges change, um, you know, I, I don't I don't want to be the guy that comes in here with the heavy hand and says we need to have regional planning. But I think, you know, to some extent that to incentivize those sorts of things, it, it needs to be, you know, it, it's challenging in communities where at the, the county line, the zoning abruptly changes um, or even between municipalities and counties. We see that all the time. All um, the with time. An, with annexations. I mean, I live in a community in, in Frederick County where, you know, they're talking about an annexation and, you know, challenging what Frederick County wants there. And um, I think that they're, I don't know exactly how we get there. I wish I did um, because I know the municipalities and the counties would fight it. But I, I think incentivizing is probably the way to do it to encourage um more collaboration that way you know it's it we do have to take a step back and realize though that planning is pretty good in maryland and many of our sure. counties most of our counties do a really good job of this um and do have sort of their heart in the right place and we, we obviously have seen the results of that i used to work in pennsylvania um so i know how different it can be um and you know there you have every township planning and and doing zoning differently and um so it we do a pretty good job in Maryland. I think the the conversation here is about how do we make it even better. And from our perspective, you know, kind of going back to what we were saying before is I think we do an amazing job on um, curtailing sprawl. It's a matter and a question of how do we intensify development in existing areas. And some of that, you know, we're interested, um, you know, coming back, we do work here in Frederick and I live here, but um, you know, for people who are familiar with this area, we have like the 355-80 corridor, which is basically a, an old sprawl corridor, a big box yeah, corridor sure, coming out sure. of the city. And it's, you know, it's your classic, you know, strip malls and uh, Walmarts and things like that. And so the question is, as the big box, you know, slowly dies, what do we do with that space? And how do we upzone that space now 
so that developers are like, let's go in and build here and then provide a you know a pattern or form book that kind of guides the development so that what we end up with there um, is compelling and a great place to live, where currently it's sort of just a blur. Um, it could become a really compelling place. And and that there are opportunities like that all across the board, including the one that you're talking about in Baltimore. Yeah. One one thing I would look at, this is a little niche point of view, but um, is is with those big boxes and malls being demolished. Look at healthcare and wellness playing a, a bigger, bigger role in that kind of space. Or if you were to have a form coded environment with that kind of massing and new looks and things, um, you know, clearly healthcare would be um, a gr- an amazing use. What you know. Yeah, healthcare, talking, housing, and and you know, long term ha- care. Right, healthcare I mean, is housing, right? Yeah, yeah, sense, and, right? yeah, and and long term care. I mean, you know, yeah, one of the things that yeah. we've done too, um, that I think that there are some examples here and some ideas for what the state could do elsewhere is we worked really hard. Um, not surprisingly, there are these we call them like white elephants, but there are these mega properties around the state that are former government complexes. Um, think of like your Crownsville Hospital, um, right. your Spring Warfield, Grove. Spring Grove. I mean, these are just albatrosses. And and part of it has to do with how the state divests of property, um, which we worked um, with Senator uh, Katie Freihester out of Howard County to work on getting a study group together to figure out what's going on here and went through this whole process. And, and part of it was we realized like when the state goes to get rid of a property, they kind of they normally just sit on it for like 20 or 30 years and then they're like, well, we probably should get rid of it now. And by then it has a lot of problems and is going to cost uh, an enormous amount of money for a private developer or even the state to rehab. And so one of the things we learned, one of the things that we're pushing for now is to create sort of a branch or a special strike team within state government that thinks about divestment more and ah. more holistically because also sometimes is maybe the answer is we should mothball it, but we're going to need it someday. Um, you know, because we looked at like, I think it was Rhode Island, where Rhode Island never really gets rid of any property, not surprisingly, because it's so small. But what they do is they do like long term leases. They'll give somebody like a hundred year lease, but then they figure, well, in a hundred years, we might need that. And here in Maryland, it's kind of like it's up to the agency or whatever might happen. There's really no centralized thought process on how that works. So so that's you know I'm kind of off on a little tangent here. Kind of no, I'm gonna bring that, I, I'm gonna bring you I'm gonna bring you right back because yeah. Well, one of the things ahead. that we did that I wanted to mention though is yeah. then we out of that we work with Senator Hester to create a catalytic tax credit program that every two years gives out fifteen million dollars to a developer that is working on one of these former government complexes. It has to be either wow. formally owned by the federal or state government, and the idea is to kind of jumpstart these because we re- we realized. Um, you know, and I, I know um, town executive Pittman has talked about this and others have with like Crownsville, that property was costing the state almost a million dollars a year to do nothing. Right. So yeah, if you if you think about the long term cost savings, I mean, they you know, the state's held on to that thing for like 30 years. It's like 30 million bucks. Um, and so why not just front load some of that cash, get rid of it and then turn it into something that maybe even comes back onto the tax rolls. So the first couple rounds of these have gone out. Um, one went to Warfield outside of Sykesville. And then the most recent one went up to Fort Ritchie um, in northern Washington County. Um, but I think that the reason I mention it is not only is it, I think it's a cool program and we're proud of it, but also I think it it 
there's some incentive concepts in there for transfer-oriented development and catalytic credits that kind of bring things forward, particularly, you know, one of the things that we wanted to see emphasized was like, are you going to create housing in these places? Are you going to help solve right. some of the state's most pressing issues? Not just rehab a structure, but what are you going to do with it in the long run? And I think that there's probably something there for the transit-oriented, transit-oriented side as well. Well, look, you. Ju- uh, I'm going to, I got to invite you out to UMBC and Spring Grove and Catonsville for lunch. Some of the best food in the state of Maryland. So you can, I think, I think that kind of program might work really well for, um, for Spring Grove, obviously. And definitely the other other point you made, you know, I'm thinking about Rosewood takes us back up the road to Owings Mills, which, which really, you know, if we have a Northern Virginia in Baltimore where you have, you know, huge companies, universities, we even have the Ravens in Owings Mills. I mean, that's kind of the place that it is already the place that Maryland wants to be. And so to find, you know, uh, in your point there, I mean, they, they were able to to reposition Rosewood with Stevenson University even without some of those uh, fantastic incentives, I can't imagine what what could be brought to bear um, with that sort of force in the future out there. I mean, Owings Mills really is, it really is the place that Maryland is trying to be when it talks about its policy. Can you talk to me, Nicholas, last question? And um, you've endured all my interrupting comments, but l- last question for you. Is there anything you see? We're, kind of getting 2023 underway here in February. We'll be getting into the spring. Anything you see throughout the year that you're looking at as an expert in land policy and preservation and smart growth, anything you're looking forward to or seeing out there that we should keep an eye on? And then, you know, you'll come back and say, I told you so. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm, I am excited in the with the new administration to be able to start working with the new secretary of planning and kind of see what their priorities are. I mean, I think this is a big, you know, it's a big opportunity. It's a big moment um, for where MDP heads. Um, obviously, you know, uh, Governor Moore as, as close with, with Glenn Denning, and there's a lot of um, Glenn Denning alumni sort of sprinkled throughout the administration. And so I think that smart growth is going to be um, something that comes back to the fore. And I think it, it's it's sort of like smart growth 2.0. How do we take smart growth and not just save rural landscapes, which we have to continue to do, but how do we now use smart growth to solve some of the most pressing challenges in the state, like affordable housing? And how do we how do we how do we do that in a way that incentivizes communities? I, I'm I'm excited to see where that conversation heads and what kind of resources the state is able to provide. And I don't just mean financial and giant catalytic fifteen million dollar tax credits, but actually getting back into the communities and providing technical assistance. I mean, we do that all the time, and you'd be surprised. Like communities need help. Um, That's right. Not every municipality um, is a Baltimore County or a Howard County that has you know, large professional staff. Um, some of them just need basic assistance and have um, their hearts in the right place, but need some of that support. And so that's kind of like basic bread and butter sort of that's planning empathy assistance. For the, but that's empathy for the NIMBY, right? That's you got to look with at empathy with folks that may be reluctant to change and try to offer them resources and tools that help them chart their own path. 
Yeah. So I think that that's, I think that's critically important. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm ex excited to see that and excited to see um, how this new secretary of planning and the new Maryland department of planning, um, it kind of breathes some life into that. And, you know, at the tail end of the O'Malley administration, there was plan Maryland that kind of got shelved. So where do they pick that up and, and how are they going to provide those resources? And then dovetailing into that, what kind of incentives can we put in place um, that make this work. You know, we're, we've been, we didn't really talk about it, but we've been the champion of the state historic tax credit, which is a great infill tool and in that it revitalizes existing place. But one of the takeaways from that is it is a, it is a huge boon for the state. So within like seven years of a property being rehab, um, there are $8 in economic incentive coming in for every dollar the state put into it at the outset. So the state makes a ton of money off of these projects once they once they come to fruition and, and pretty much all of them do once you go through that whole process. And one of the things that DLS um, sort of cited when they reviewed this several years back is like it's probably one of the most effective tax credits we have. But also it has a lot to do with the fact that once you rehab a building, once you invest in a place and use a tax credit to do that, you can't pick it up and be like, you know what? The company wants to move all their jobs to Northern Virginia now. Totally like you can't fair. pick up the historic factory building and move it. It is where it is. It's rooted. And so I think incentives that invest in place are um, inherently a good bet for the state. I think it's great to invest in jobs and things like that. But I think investing in place um, creates an atmosphere and an ecosystem for communities to thrive. And so perhaps... The broader planning community and those folks interested in transit-oriented development, all these important um, aspects of smart growth for the state of Maryland, can look to things like the historic tax credit or that catalytic credit and think about how do we create one um, that incentivizes what we need and, and perhaps in, incorporates design um, and some of those other features that we talked about. Um, because I think um, the when presented with the right information and the right kind of design and the right plan, a lot of people can come around to it. Um, it's just that, like we said before, I think it's important that you paint the picture holistically, not as a one-off. Well, Maryland, I must tell you, we know that uh, Paris Glendening, who brought the Ravens to town, we know the Ravens need an offensive coordinator, but Governor Moore... <laughs> When it comes to smart growth, when it comes to preservation, and when it comes to making the promise of all of that a reality, Governor Moore's got an offensive coordinator in Nicholas Redding of Preservation Maryland. Thank I you. I like that. I'm going I'm to quote you on that. It's going on LinkedIn. <laughs> Nicholas, thanks so much for joining us, man. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you.